The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, February 28th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You've heard about the X Prize, the Pulitzer Prize, the Man Booker Prize. But do you know about the Mo Ibrahim Prize? It is the most remunerative prize in the world. The Mo Ibrahim Foundation gives this prize to the African leader who leaves office peacefully and in a timely manner. You know, when they're voted out, not forced out at bayonet point. Sorry, Yaya Jama of Gambia. The prize is worth $5 million, paid over a decade, and then for the rest of your life, you get $200,000. Wow. And with that in mind, we can announce the winner of this year's Mo Ibrahim Foundation Prize for Graceful Exit goes to... Nobody. No one won the prize. No one qualified. All right. This comes on the heels of last year's winner of the Mo Ibrahim Prize for Graceful Exit, which went to... Also nobody. Well, it kind of makes sense. The committee chairman said in a statement, quote, this prize is intended to highlight and celebrate truly exceptional leadership, which is uncommon by its very definition perhaps calling into question the construction of the prize. Actually, what's true is that we're talking about a continent where leaders don't always leave office gracefully. And even if they do, they don't often leave behind a great legacy. Legacy. So I was thinking of others who could qualify for this prize, because only four leaders have ever won it since its inception in 2006. And three of them were from rather small countries. Cape Verde, fewer than a million people. Namibia, Botswana, the presidents of those countries. Uh, that's about 2 million people. I do got to say, Joaquim Chisano of Mozambique, country of 25 million people, 12th largest in Africa. Good on you. But if we expanded the definition a little bit, I was thinking of other people who could qualify. Like you need a great legacy. You need a graceful exit. But if we just take away the African leader part, David Ortiz could win it. Derek Jeter could win it. See, I went ecumenical there. Or... How about this? How about that? What if a letter of recommendation from the current leader of the United States, what if that went really far about an African leader who left gracefully? Barack Obama could win it. Although Trump would argue that while Obama is African, he left behind a mess, a mess. Crime, 47 year high, Bowling Green, never forget all that stuff. But see, I have a plan. Seychelles, nation of 97,000 people. Let's do the math. You get elected in Seychelles, build up some infrastructure, leave office quickly. Everyone in Seychelles gets 50 bucks. And then, after those 10 years, everyone in Seychelles gets an annuity of $2 for life. And in fact, the leader of Seychelles, James Michel, did resign peacefully just a couple of months ago. He did oversee economic expansion, and he did open up elections to some extent. Freedom House rates them as partly free. It's a start. Maybe the Mo Ibrahim Foundation was being a little stingy on this one. The population of Seychelles is knocking at the door. They want their $5. On the show today, a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. The job was healthcare reform, and nobody knew it would be so hard. End of story, start of spiel. But first, President Trump is addressing a joint session of Congress this evening. He favors a budget that includes massive cuts to the Department of State. It turns out diplomacy is something Donald Trump doesn't have much use for. But Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, is here to say, before you divert all your money to the cavalry, 
Hold your horses, Mr. President. Dr. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as the senior Middle East advisor to President George Herbert Walker Bush. He worked in the Carter, Reagan, and Bush the Younger White House as well. And his new book is called A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Hello. Welcome, Richard Haas. Good to be here. So let's go back to what was that old order Ooh, good. It's the Peace of Westphalia. Tell us about why that just didn't end the 80 years war and Germany's part in the 30 years war, but kind of redefined what countries are and essentially why they deserve not to be invaded or at war with each other. Well, as you were uh, indirectly suggesting, the uh, Treaty of Westphalia in the mid 17th century was a, a big idea. It was a big innovation. And it essentially said that nation states or countries in the modern parlance uh, were the principal pieces on the international chessboard, that they would recognize uh, and accept their borders with one another, would not try to change them by force, and that they would pretty much respect the right of one another to do as they saw fit within their own borders. They would not mess around inside one another's territories. And that was the idea. Sometimes it was honored, sometimes it was not, particularly when there was no longer a balance of power. And that got us through for better and for worse, about 350 years of history. And my argument is that simply it's still necessary. We don't want people invading one another with alacrity. On the other hand, it's no longer uh, sufficient that we live in a world, thanks to globalization, where nothing stays local for long, whether it's a disease outbreak or a bunch of hackers or a bunch of terrorists or something to do with climate change or, or anything else, things are crossing borders uh, in great numbers with, in, with great speed. So what goes on inside another country's territory has suddenly in many instances become our business as well and that we need an arrangement in the world which takes that into account. And my argument is that ought to be the guiding principle of American foreign policy, that we ought to get other sovereigns, essentially other states, to uh, sign up to the sense that they have obligations as well as rights. We ourselves would have to live the same way. We would have obligations as well as rights. So it, it takes the basic idea of sovereignty and then it builds on it. So it's a kind of realism for the age of globalization. Yeah, I think about the idea of order. And it seems to me that for those hundreds of years, the idea of disorder would just be, as you imply, something that crosses a national boundary. But now, and it's not just ISIS and it's not just bird flu, it's even uh, dissent within a country. I wonder, whatever the equivalent of the Egyptians cracking heads in Tahrir Square was 200 years ago, I don't think other countries would care. We're kind of defining a disarray in the way that it pulls us into conflict more than ever. Well, take what's happened in Syria. Uh, you had all sorts of atrocities going on. More than half the population's been displaced. And normally we'd say that's an awful humanitarian situation. But we have to think about it differently because of the refugee situation. So a million refugees or so leave Syria, head towards Europe. Suddenly it transforms the, the politics and economics of Europe and it puts at risk the entire experiment known as you know, the European Union that it's been in existence for nearly three quarters of a century. Or because of Syria, where you no longer have a government in charge of big chunks of its own territory, you have these things known as non-state actors, groups like ISIS, 
able to cause terrorism directly and indirectly around the uh, the globe. So again, this is this is just a different world. In some cases, globalization can be a good thing, but these are examples where globalization is anything but. If uh, Westphalia was World Order 1.0, what was the Cold War? Well, the Cold War was the the last period in many ways of World Order uh, 1.0. It was a, a world, again, where sovereignty was respected. Indeed, there was something like spheres of influence, where the United States did not overturn the Soviet role and influence in Eastern Europe. Uh, the Soviets were forced to back down in October 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there was a, a wariness. The two superpowers were extraordinarily careful uh, not to cross certain boundaries, literally and figuratively, because they feared the other would react and that could set off a daisy chain of events, which could ultimately, ultimately bring nuclear weapons into play. So it, it was actually an extraordinarily disciplined world with two centers or two poles of power. And what we what's happened since then is that we now have any number of poles of power, literally dozens of them, if not more. And there, there's much less uh, discipline. Decision making is now far more decentralized. Well, it seems to me then that you could argue order correlates to oppression. I mean, Reagan didn't buy into the world order. He wanted to disrupt it with the Reagan doctrine. No, I think order correlates to, to structure, to a, an agreement on the rules and to a balance of power. And that's the lesson of history, where there's consensus on the rules and a balance of power, even those who don't buy into the rules can't do much about it. The danger now is we don't have much in the way of rules, and we don't have much in the way of a balance of power, uh, in part because power has been distributed in so many hands in so many places, in part because the United States has become more wary of using what power uh, it has. There's much less in the way of consensus, much less in the way of structure, and there's no country anymore that seems to be able and willing to play a, a leading role in keeping things calm. I get it. So it's Fukuyama was 180 degrees from the truth. It wasn't the end of history. It was the start of a new history we had to figure Basically out. Basically right. Yeah. But, I, uh, uh, but, but, but I want to go back to the Soviet Union. So you're saying it wasn't, uh, it, we can't fault uh, whatever America and, and Reagan did to bring down the Soviet Union. It's the fault of the Soviet Union for being so weak that they couldn't uh, hold up their end of world order. Uh, and I'd probably say neither. I think it's, you know, it's good that the Cold War ended, good that the Soviet Union went out of business, good that the countries of Eastern Europe uh, were freed up. But history didn't stop there. And that is where Fukuyama essentially got it wrong, though he would argue he was writing about a, a metaphysical concept rather than one grounded in reality. <laughs> then his but, book uh, was in the wrong section of the bookstore that day. Something like that. <laughs> I, that there's the old line about Henry Kissinger's book when he wrote a book called uh, The Troubled Partnership, and it was about NATO, except he found it often in the marriage part of the bookstore. <laughs> so you uh, have to be careful what you title books these uh, these days. No, it's just sure. simply with it, when the Cold War ended, there was a certain discipline that ended with it. The institutions that were left standing, many of which had been invented you know, 50 years before, were no longer adequate to deal with the pressures of, of globalization. And over the last, you know, what, 10 years, you've had a United States that's been reluctant in many ways to act. Before that, you can argue under George W. Bush, the United States overreached. So this combination of structural changes plus American uh, overreach followed by underreach, I yeah. would argue, has brought us to where we are. Yes, and where we are is uh, Donald Trump saying in his inaugural, we will seek friendship and goodwill with the nations of the world, but we do so with the understanding that it is the right of all nations to put their interests first. We do not seek to impose our way of life on anyone. 
uh, clear repudiation of Reagan and others. What do you think of that formulation? Uh, the only part of it I, ex- I embrace is the idea that we will not try to impose our, our preferences on others, though I think we should still advocate for our, our preferences. But the whole idea of America first seems to me to be way too narrow, and it seems to me to miss the larger point. The United States act in, acts in the world to, among other things, bring structure and stability to it, not as an act of charity for others, but as an act of self-interest, that our own welfare depends upon world stability, world trading arrangements. So I think Mr. Trump gets it wrong in important ways. I think he uh, exaggerates the costs of what we've done in the world. I think he underestimates the benefits that have accrued to us over the, uh, the decades. I think he's way too quick to blame what we spend on foreign policy for what we fail to do in terms of solving our, our economic or, or, or social problems. And I think many of the quote-unquote remedies he's suggesting, getting out of trade agreements, closing our borders somewhat to, uh, to immigrants, questioning alliance commitments, rather than making the, the world safer uh, or the United States better off, risks having just the opposite effect. Yeah, and even in areas where he's pulled back from what would be radical changes in foreign policy, policy, I think of the, well, maybe we won't come to the aid of NATO member states or um, his his chumminess with Russia, which is then contradicted by Nikki Haley at the UN or two China policy. Okay, fine. One China policy. But do you think even that uh, has an effect? Is it like the airplane goes into a nosedive, then pulls up and goes into a nosedive and then pulls up? And after a while, it's got to stress the system. Yeah, I'm afraid it does. And the mere fact that an American president could say those things raises fundamental questions about U.S. US reliability and predictability. And if you're a friend of the United States, if you're an ally, and you essentially made the strategic choice that you were going to place an awful lot of your security in American hands, this doesn't exactly fill you with comfort. And I expect a lot of those countries are revisiting some of their basic strategic uh, decisions, and they're asking themselves, should they maybe edge closer to some powerful countries in their neighborhood, if they live in Asia, for example, towards China? Or maybe they should take matters more into their own hands and uh, increase the amount they spend on arms simply because they don't want to be as reliant on the United States. And all of this is a, uh, is a prescription for a world of uh, diminished American influence and probably diminished stability. Well, let's talk about China and Russia for a second. First, let's take China. You're somewhat sanguine about China. I mean, if the, if the book is a world in disarray, they don't represent at least disarray. They have this idea of the Middle Kingdom. Yet others will talk about the... Uh, Thucydides' uh, argument of foreign policy, whenever there's an emerging power and an established power, they go into conflict, uh, square that circle. Yeah, there is that school of thought that there's an inevitability to U.S.-China clash, uh, as you put it, uh, rising powers versus existing powers. I don't buy that for a second. China's not a revolutionary country. It's got a real economy. It's integrated into the region and the world. It's worried, for example, now about things like climate change. It's not wild about the fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons. It's worried about terrorism. So I actually think uh, China is a, a country that we, we can work with. And I would say we want to work with on such things as North Korea, which really uh, is outside, is a revolutionary country and has nuclear weapons and is uh, moving as fast as it can to figure out how to put those weapons on top of missiles that can reach the United States. And it's probably only a couple of years away. So China is a country we can work with. And I would argue it's a country we have to work with. Okay, Russia. Let me let me lay this theory on you. I don't even believe this theory, but maybe a skilled Russian could uh, uh, advance something like just treat us like Saudi Arabia. 
we, we're a big oil rich country. We want our sphere of influence. At least look the other way when we try to, you know, dominate our part of the world, uh, with Saudi Arabia actually funds some of the rebels. We have pretty, we have oppression of our people at home. Actually, Russia's much better than Saudi Arabia. You know, maybe Russia can argue treat us like a new Saudi Arabia. Uh, not quite, though. They both are essentially dependent on oil. But yeah, look, the Russians have used force to conquer a part of one of its neighbors. That violates the most basic principle of international relations. We thought Europe was whole and safe and free, and Russia's exposed it now for being something very different. They just committed war crimes in Syria and the way they went about helping uh, the regime there. They interfered in our election. So I don't think we should kid ourselves. Russia is not a status quo power. They are something of a revolutionary power. They're a spoiler uh, at, at a minimum. And I think what we need to do is push back. We ought to be strengthening NATO. We ought to be helping Ukraine, uh, giving them some more arms so they can defend themselves. On the other hand, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go to war with Russia. And I think we should be willing to have more of a dialogue with them. We could, you know, if Mr. Putin needs reassurance that we're not trying to overthrow him, we can give him that reassurance. We don't need to expand NATO to Ukraine or Georgia anytime soon, in part because neither is ready for it or even close to being ready for it. So I think we both have to be more reasonable towards Russia, though also tougher towards Russia. Now, whether this administration will uh, find its way to such a balance, your guess is as good as, as good as mine. And my last question for you is this. I know you've advised presidents, so I'm going to give you the challenge of advising Donald Trump, but knowing he's not going to just adopt the Richard Haas foreign policy. You have to, <laughs> you have to advise him to be Trumpian, to you know, go through the UN will not be good advice for him. So what's the sort of most pro-Trumpian argument you could make to get the best result from him, do you think? What I would emphasize is the importance of uh, building up a, a strong uh, national security advisor. He just appointed someone who has that uh, potential. And to basically say, uh, Mr. President, if you want to be a successful president, there can't be any daylight between you and your secretary of state or your secretary of defense. When they go around the world and speak, everyone has to think that they are speaking for you. Uh, there can't be any daylight between you and your national security advisor. Same thing. So, you know, governing is different than anything you've ever done before. It's harder than anything you've ever done before. So it's going to mean that you're going to have to run a, a tighter ship and you have the potential in you to get it right. But it won't just uh, it won't organize itself by itself. And it's probably going to mean you're going to have to rein in some of your other White House advisors. And every once in a while, you're going to have to keep your finger uh, away from the send button on your iPhone. Richard Haas' new book is A World in Disarray. It is not, if you are listening to this on earphones in a, in a bookstore, it is not one of these decluttering books. Uh, it is If it's next to Marie Kondo, it's in the wrong section. The subtitle is American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Thank you, Richard Haas. Thank you, sir. And now the spiel wherein I ask, how is folding a gas station map or curing the common cold different from the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture? As you know, the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture describes the set of rational solutions to equations defining an elliptic curve. See, everybody knows that solving the Birch and Swinnerton Dyer conjecture is hard. It's hard to solve. That's why there's a million dollar prize for solving it. Everybody knows it's hard. Nobody thinks it's not hard, but folding a gas station map or curing the common cold or getting the Pacquiao Mayweather fight to go off. Now, those were things that nobody knew 
could be so complicated. So I ask you, which category does healthcare belong in? Donald Trump says, it's not like the Birch Swinnerton Dyer conjecture. It's more like folding a gas station map in that nobody knew that healthcare could be so complicated. See, I thought everybody knew that. I've even seen a supercut put together by Politico of President Obama saying that over and over again. You know, healthcare is complicated because our healthcare system is so complex. I suffer no illusions that this will be an easy process. Once again, it will be hard. Healthcare is complicated stuff. So let me explain what's going on here. Simple explanation is that Trump does not know what he's talking about, but that is not what's going on. This is how Trump communicates. See, Donald Trump, ever the showman, knows that when communicating, you want to avoid qualifiers. Those are weasel words. Some, many, most, often, a lot. So when Donald Trump says nobody, what he really means is something close to almost everybody. Example. So where are you on the environment? I'm still open-minded. Nobody really knows. I've Look, I'm somebody that gets it. And nobody really knows. It's not something that's so hard and fast. Nobody knows, meaning almost every informed scientist knows. In fact, most every informed citizen knows climate change is real. Likewise, there's nobody better, which in Donald Trump's mouth means actually millions of people are better. So many, many better people. Here's this example. If you look at Ivanka, you take a look and she's so strong, as you know, into the women's issue and childcare and so many things should be so good. You, nobody could do better than her. So that's nobody. What about everybody? If nobody means pretty close to everybody, does everybody mean almost nobody? When Donald Trump says it, it does mean that. I released the most extensive financial review of anybody in the history of politics. It's either 100 or maybe more pages of names of companies, locations of companies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and it's a very impressive list. And everybody says that. Everybody says that except every single ethics expert I've ever heard from who all say it's inadequate. So everybody means almost nobody. Nobody means almost everybody. To wit, here are a couple things Donald Trump says he could do better than anybody or what he knows more than anybody. I think I know more about foreign policy than anybody running. And who could forget this? I can be more presidential than anybody. I can be more presidential if I want to be. I can be more presidential than anybody. You know, when I have 16 people coming at me from 16 different angles, uh, you don't want to be so presidential. You have to win. You have to beat them back, right? And, but I would say more presidential, and I've said this a couple of times, more presidential than anybody other than the great Abe Lincoln. And I think everybody agrees with him on that. Everybody plays the fool question is, if when everybody means closer to nobody and vice versa, what about the somebodies? We're all somebodies, right? When does Donald Trump refer to the somebodies, the some people? Here's when. When he needs to introduce a theory or crazily inaccurate statement that even he doesn't want to own. Some people, a lot of people, many are saying. Here he was at a campaign rally talking about how horrible the deal was that the U.S. cut with Iran. What, what's going on there? You, that's why I say, I mean, some people say it's worse than stupidity. There's something going on that we don't know about. I mean, honestly. And you almost think it. I'm not saying that and I'm not a conspiracy person. Nope. He's just reporting what people are saying. Like this. People are saying, many, many people are saying, you know, Trump is right. He's absolutely right about NATO. 
Some people tell me, a lot of people are saying, I'm just reporting here better than the failing New York Times, I might add. Here's another example of what some folks are saying. This time, it was about President Obama not sufficiently labeling the Orlando nightclub attack as Muslim terrorism. Well, there are a lot of people that think maybe he doesn't want to get it. A lot of people think maybe he doesn't want to know about it. And that's where the nobody knew healthcare could be so complicated idea comes in. Everybody knew it. But it's not that he's lying. It's not that he can't even speak the truth. It's that we don't speak Trump. And he expects us to, clearly. Like when he talks to his crowds, including this time when the crowd consisted of all the media at his only press conference as president. Does anybody really think that Hillary Clinton would be tougher on Russia than Donald Trump? Does anybody in this room really believe that? No, not anybody. Everybody. So with this guide to Donald Trump, anybody can figure out what a certain somebody in the Oval Office means when he says everybody and nobody. Now, some people are saying this is not excusable, that there's another word for it. Rampant, wanton, uncontrolled, lying. But everybody knows a president wouldn't do that, right? Anybody? You're nobody till somebody loves you. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson picked up a copy of Gone with the Wind, expecting a guide to digestive health. Just producer Chris Berube avoided Brideshead Revisited because he didn't read the original and, you know, Evelyn Waugh, chicklet. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, browsing in the music section, came across the definitive biography of Louie Louie, All the Kingsmen. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, wanted to read about the most lopsided score in NFL history. It's trending on Amazon, 1984. The gist, using this space to pioneer the Google pun, let's see if this works. We picked up Lord of the Flies. We're disappointed that it was not indeed a biography of Whitcomb L. Judson. Whitcomb L. Judson. You might have had to work a little, but it's definitely not worth it. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. Whitcomb L. Judson. He invented the zipper.